Turn again in your Bibles to the passage we read, 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. <clears throat> you can read again the last couple of words, the last couple of verses rather of the chapter. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. The apostle in this passage is addressing the misuse, the abuse of the Lord's Supper within the church. We're told that the Corinthians would gather together to feast. And when they were feasting, there was some who were hungry, while others had much. They weren't sharing, but rather they were gathering in one place, and those who had plenty had plenty, and there was others who had little who had little. And so in this feast, there were some who were hungry and shamed by their poverty. Even speaks about those being drunken, whether that's intoxicated or it's just that they had so much, they were full in contrast to those who were still hungry. And so they were gathering, as he said, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but they were not united. They were divided. It wasn't about inclusion, rather, it was about exclusion, because their priority in gathering, it wasn't the Savior, it wasn't the Lord, rather, it was the Supper. Or it was themselves. Told that they were not discerning the Lord's body. And that could apply, of course, to the elements that they were not discerning the significance of the bread, illustrating his body broken. The significance of the blood, his, of the wine rather, his blood shed. But also that may have the sense that they were not discerning the Lord's body. They were not discerning the, the fellowship of believers, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't considering one another. They were just considering oneself. And so in verse 20, Paul says, when you gather together in this way, this is not the Lord's Supper. You can call it that, but that's not what it is. It's a mockery. It's shameful. And it's bringing trouble. It doesn't show forth the Lord's death until he comes. It misrepresents the reality of the Lord's death. They'd taken something that was to be spiritual and it became sensual and selfish. And as a consequence, they were not strengthened by it, but rather they were weakened. It's one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? It's to strengthen the Lord's people. 
But rather than strengthening, they were being weakened. They were provoking judgment upon themselves. The word damnation in verse 29 is judgment. Not the judgment, final judgment, but rather the chastisement of the Lord. That their misuse was provoking the Lord to chastise them and chastise them even very severely. So we're told in verse 30, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and, and many sleep. There was a consequence from their sin which resulted in their general well-being. There was those who were no longer physically robust. There were some who were removed from the church through death. They might not trouble the church anymore. It's not solemn for the Lord to preserve his cause. And providence must remove some of his people. So here we have strong words of rebuke. But not only is it a rebuke, it's a call to repentance. Not only pointing out what is wrong and what has caused trouble. But it's a call to repent, to turn from that, not to continue in that way, not to give up hope either. But rather to reform. Paul is writing to those who have misused, who have abused the Lord's supper and suffered as a consequence. But he's not prohibiting them from coming to the Lord's table. He's not debarring them. He's not excluding them. This is not the unforgivable sin. These are very solemn words. There is a solemn warning here, but there's, there's no exclusion. And that's why we focused on these final verses. Because in verse 33, after having exposed their folly, having rebuked their sin, and shown the consequences of it, the apostle says, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat. He doesn't say, wherefore, my brethren, be gone. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together. And he doesn't say, wherefore, you Corinthians. It's wherefore, my brethren. Isn't it wonderful? His gracious way of dealing with sinners. That's our Lord's way, isn't it? And he deals graciously with us in the imperfection of faith, in the imperfection of our practice. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What is to strengthen the church? To strengthen you as individuals? is that we might draw together, and together we might draw closer to Christ. That we might remember his death. 
We might anticipate his return. We might affirm our part in his death, our hope that comes through his death. We might appreciate the reality of that. The sacrament is a, a visible expression of a spiritual reality that through the death of Christ, we have life. The Belgic Confession, the European equivalent really of the Westminster Confession, says that faith is the hand and the mouth of the soul. And so in the sacrament, with our hands and with our mouths, we demonstrate that we feed upon Christ. We show the reality of what faith does and that we have faith. That we embrace the grace of God and the covenant of grace. Our confidence in all that Jesus Christ is and has done. And we bind ourselves. We bind ourselves again to him, to be his and to live for him as a part of his church. And so today we want to prepare, we want to anticipate coming to sit at his table tomorrow. And that's why I want us to focus on what we have here. Particularly in verse 33, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Well, first of all, there's a need of patience. What does tarry mean? Tarry means to wait. Tarry one for another. Don't push on ahead. Don't go alone. Don't do your own thing. It's not about you as an individual. It's not about you to assert yourself. That's what had been happening as those who had much enjoyed their much and ignored the rest. Friends, it's not about me. It's about we. There's no caste system in the church. There's no tears. There's no classes. Young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile. Bond and free, rich and poor, the experienced and the immature. You cannot partake of the Lord's Supper alone. It's not private. You cannot partake of the Lord's Supper alone. You can only do so with your brethren. And therefore, you must tarry. For one another. Very often there's a examination of self, isn't there? And as we examine ourselves, we're very conscious of ourselves and our own burdens and our own needs and our own anxieties and our own hopes and our own encouragements and our own experience. And I'm not saying that's not relevant, I'm not saying that's not important, but that's not all there is. You're to have patience as you tarry one for another. We're told there's no temptation taking you but such as common to man. And that should surely give you some understanding that 
your experience, your anxieties, your fears, your hopes, that there's others around you who have similar experiences and hopes and fears and all these things. And yes, there is a need that you receive, but you're to have a concern for one another and how you can help the others. Serving. Serving one another. Supporting. Strengthening. We had a precious lady in our congregation in Strath. And she was high in her 90s. And she was still able to come to worship. And she could stand after a fashion and walk after a fashion. But when we came forward to the table, the lady next to her would help her up. And they would let others go down first because she would be slower. And then they would come down together. The older woman leaning upon the younger woman, helping one another. They would sit together. And that's how it should be. It's not about a physical infirmity particularly. But there are some, and no doubt there are some here who have doubts and fears, trembling, hesitant about coming, maybe resolving that they just won't come this time, next time. Because next time always feels so far away that you think by next time you'll have it sorted. But who this time, with your help and with your encouragement, your patience, may be strengthened and supported to take the place that they have at the table that the Lord has provided for them. It's not for the strong and able-bodied. Because spiritually, none of us are strong and none of us are able-bodied. It's the strength in the weak. And therefore, there's a need for patience. When you sit at the Lord's table, it's not just that we simultaneously as individuals sit. But we sit together. And so you need to, as you prepare, ask yourself this question. How can I encourage those around me? Is there anyone in particular that I can encourage? Sometimes we might even be frustrated by those who are just not getting it. That's the wrong response, isn't it? Instead of being frustrated by them, instead of just leaving them, we're to go and to help and to bring them on. It's a long walk to the session, isn't it? The fear of sitting before the session, these men, and you... You don't know what they'll say, and you hear some of the stories of what might have been said in the past. And yet there's some of you, and you've, you've done that, and you've been helped by that, and they've dealt with you so tenderly, and how you can encourage one another by speaking about that.
We're not to be self-focused. Because it's not all about you. Paul writing to the Ephesians says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, this is how we're to be, friends, not simply in anticipation of sitting at the Lord's table and sitting at the Lord's table, but from week to week, ready to embrace. It would be long that people would come in and would worship with us. It long that the church would be built up. But are you ready to embrace those that will come in? Know the brokenness of life. And increasingly, there's a total dysfunctional brokenness in society, and that's in individuals. And people will come in in a mess and will be demanding, be uncomfortable. And yet, we're not to tarry one for another. Remember the words of our Savior to his disciples. He said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. It's not easy. But his grace is sufficient. And the reality is, not to do so is to be unfaithful. But to do so is to discover the reality of his grace. And it will have the effect of actually bringing you closer to the Lord. As you depend upon him more and more, as you cast yourself upon him because it's beyond you. We're not to isolate ourselves. First of all, we can think then of our need of patience. Secondly, we can speak about preparation. What do I mean by that? In verse 34, the apostle says, And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. He says, prepare yourself. Don't come hungry. To the Lord's Supper, because it's not about eating a great meal. If you're hungry, that's okay. It's good to have a healthy appetite. And if you've got lots of food, well, enjoy your meal. But don't be doing that in a way that's going to bring shame upon others and it's going to divide the church. Prepare yourself. You're coming to sit at the Lord's table to remember the Lord's death until he comes. And so put everything else in its place so that when you come, that your focus is upon the Lord. Not ignoring your necessary needs. You're to come. You're to come ready. Verse 
27, it speaks about eating and drinking unworthily. Same again in verse 29, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. That word is not describing the person eats and drinks. It's describing the manner in which the person eats and drinks. No, we are all unworthy. That's a description of the person. But the concern is that those who are unworthy but come because of the grace of God come in an unworthy manner, come unworthily. With a carelessness, a casualness, without having made preparation. Selfishly, thoughtlessly. And that's why you must prepare. So you don't come unworthily, but that you who are unworthy come in the right way. You're not making yourself worthy. But you're making yourself ready. So you're to prepare. There's some very simple things you can do to prepare. Paul says, have your dinner first. But there are things that can be done to prepare as well, aren't there? And some of that's what's done through the preparatory services coming up to sitting at the Lord's table. Maybe say there's three things we should focus on. First of all, the Savior. Because it's the Lord's Supper. And it's the Lord's death. And he died for the Lord's people. And it's the Lord who will come again in power and glory. And so we think of the Savior and his atoning death. The righteous for the unrighteous. The fulfillment of all covenant promise. The sin bearer. He offered up his life. A sacrifice and a ransom. Not taken from him. Wicked men used his instruments, but that he laid down his life. Acting as priest and also as sacrifice. She presented himself in our place. And made satisfaction. And that satisfaction demonstrated in the reality of the resurrection. Death had no hold upon him, he was dead. But who had the authority to lay down his life is the same one who had the authority to take it again. And he ascended up in power, having appeared to his disciples. We're reminded last night how when he met with his disciples in that that room where they were hidden away for fear of the Jews, that ate a piece of honey. It's a real resurrection, physical resurrection. So we remember his death, body broken, as a result of the love of God for you.
that he who died, he rose and ascended into glory and shall come again in power. And when he comes again, there'll be no veiling of who he is. But rather he'll come upon the clouds and every eye will see him. Think of our Savior who, on the night of his betrayal, as he gathered with his disciples and when he instituted the Lord's Supper, remember he did so by giving thanks. He gave thanks and said, it's with desire I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Suffer. Why did he have such a desire to eat it with them? It's in part because of his love for them. To have this time of intimate fellowship. He understood the significance of what was being portrayed in the different elements. He understood in a way that they didn't understand it. But yet he had that desire to be with them, even with all the immaturity of their understanding. Because he loved them. And he loved to be with them. He did delight in them. Not because of their perfection. But because he saw in them the love of the Father who had given to him a people. But also because of his desire to prepare them. So that he could bring them on in their understanding. And to equip them for what would lie ahead and for the church. So that we would have this sacrament. We're to focus upon the Savior and all that he is and all that he has done. We must also think about ourselves. I tried to make clear that we are not to be so focused on ourselves that we ignore those around, that we're to be patient and we're to come together. But yet we are to think about ourselves too and to acknowledge the reality of our own sin. You know, we're not to consider everyone else's sin. We consider everyone else's need and how we can try to help, but it's our own sin we're to be aware of. And confess that. And there's maybe much that we're not aware of. But there's sin that you are aware of. Particular sin. And that particular sin is to be confessed particularly before the Lord. To acknowledge the reality of it and to pray for his cleansing. And that you might be given grace to depart from it. You're to express that desire to depart from it. You're to cry out to him. Remembering that you are unworthy. This is a time, friends, when we should be dealing with sin. There's preparation by focusing upon the Savior, by focusing upon ourselves, but also 
we must focus upon the sacrament. Recognizing this, these elements, there's a picture of his body broken. So we were saying, one of the fellowships, observing that, you remember, there was no bone that was broken in his body. In fact, in the scripture, only part of his body were told it was broken was his heart. The brokenness of his body is his death, that he died. We see not his broken heart, his, his love and his giving of himself. We don't receive his body, it's bread. Bread doesn't become his body. His body is not somehow in that bread or under that bread. Or however, the different, differently try to be described. We receive bread, but bread which speaks of his body. But we receive Christ by faith. Just as he's offered to you in the gospel and you receive him in the preaching of the word. So you receive him in the sacrament by faith. There are these visible representations. It's by faith we take hold. It's by faith that we feed. He gives himself in and at the Lord's table. And you are to receive him. Patience, preparation, the thirdly, participation. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Any man hunger, let him eat at home. And ye come not together unto condemnation, unto judgment. But do come. Savior said, take, eat. Verse 28, let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. There's an expectation. That if you are examining yourself, if you have a realization of your need to prepare as you stand before a holy God. If you're concerned to recognize him and you recognize the reality of your standing before him and you seek to humble your heart and to cast yourself upon Christ. If you participate in that examination, you should be participating in the Lord's Supper. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat, and so let him drink. You're to participate. Because he is Christ, and he gives himself. It's not that sitting at the Lord's Supper will make you a Christian. That's not what we're being told here. But you who... Seek to humble yourself before him. Cry out to him for grace and mercy who trust in him. Though you be unworthy, and though you fear that you may come unworthily, you're to examine yourself, you're to cast yourself upon him, and you're to draw near, and you're to take hold of Christ as he gives himself in the preaching of his word, and as he gives himself 
at the table that he has set. Not because you're worthy, but because he's worthy of obedience. And your first priority isn't to be your own comfort. I don't feel, you see. That's what often we go will say, isn't it? I just don't feel it. It's not about feelings. The just shall live by feelings is not what the scripture says. The just shall live by faith. When you read from the larger catechism, it's not the shortest answer, but it's a very helpful answer to question 172. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? That's the question. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper? And this is the answer, and it's a very helpful answer. One that doubteth of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ though he be not yet assured thereof, and in God's account hath it, if he be, firstly, duly affected with an apprehension of the want of it, secondly, unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ, and thirdly, and to depart from iniquity, in which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubt resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. So you have a concern, a concern that you don't have that perfect assurance and that right preparation. But if that's a concern to you, because you know that that's what you need, because you stand as a sinner before a holy God, and he alone is able to save. And if you have that desire to be found in Christ, that's what you want. If you want him, because you need him, because without him, you have nothing and you're lost. And you know that he alone is the savior who can save. And there is no other hope. If you lament and cry out before the Lord because you were inability to turn from sin and to make yourself right and to live holy and worthily before him, then you're to lament that. And yet you're to recognize that this sacrament has been appointed for the relief of weak and doubting Christians. And you're to give up on your feelings. And you're to exercise faith and obedience and to come and acknowledge the Lord. Sure, you always 
children played in barns and played in the shore. One of the things children always do is try to dam the barns. You try to dam a barn and it just keeps, of course, your dam has to get bigger as as any if it's any good at all, then the water works around the edges or over the top. And part of the fun is building it, and part of the fun is trying to walk across it. Almost inevitably, you'll get wet. But what if your father had built a bridge over the river? Do you walk over that? You might hesitate to walk over your dams. Particularly as the water gets deeper. And you know how shuggly it is. There's no point. Not if you want to stay dry. But if your father had built a proper bridge over the river, you'd walk over that without any problem, would you? And what if as you were getting close to walking over the bridge, your father said, now be careful. That wouldn't really cause you to hesitate, would it? No. Be careful doesn't mean don't use it. Be careful just means be careful as you use it. What we're told here in God's word isn't don't do it, but do it right. So Paul's writing to the church. He says you've made a mess of it so far. He doesn't say give up. But what he says is now do it right. Because the Lord has made a way and he's made provision to carry you, to strengthen you. Now the child and the father says it's safe, but be careful. Well, the child carries on with confidence because their father has affirmed that it's safe and it's appropriate and it's there. and, And the Lord has made provision for you. He's made provision by giving you of himself. And that's what the sacrament is for you and your weakness. The sacrament won't save you. But because you trust in Christ for salvation, you come. Do you remember that he has saved you and is saving you and will save you? And you do that together as a part of the church over which Jesus Christ is king and head. There's to be patience, there's to be preparation, and there's to be participation. And it's interesting too, isn't it, how Paul finishes this section, because he says at the end of verse 34, and the rest will I set in order when I come. So there's still things outstanding. There's wonderful instruction here, but there's still more to learn. Even if you get all this right, there's, you're, you're still a work in progress. It's for those who are still incomplete. We'll always be incomplete until we're taken by his grace into glory. Let imperfect believers participate. You know, a bruised reed, he will not break. Smoking flax, 
and shall not quench. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Just in conclusion, it speaks here about the Lord chastising his church for their unfaithfulness. And it's a solemn chastisement, isn't it? There were some who were sick. There were some who slept. Removed from church on earth, never to trouble the church again. But you know, although they're removed from the church on earth, not removed from the church. It's not wonderful. Because Paul was able to say in Romans that I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gracious love of our God. Let us come then with confidence in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel at all that is revealed to us. We could not imagine such a love, such a provision, such grace. We weary of others and we weary of ourselves. But we marvel our God that we hear again and again in the scripture, the patient, loving kindness of God who says, come unto me. We ask then that you would enable us in faith and obedience to do so. And we pray, Lord, if there be any who have no faith and no desire for obedience, no concern for their soul and no seeking after Christ, oh, that they might be shown the horror of that reality, that they too would be given a concern for their soul to pursue after the one who in mercy calls them. Eternal Lord, be pleased then to go before us, to give us all needed boldness, wisdom, grace, and love. Cover sin for Jesus' sake. Amen.